Well, dads, glad you're here. Uh, we often know that uh, on Father's Day, a lot of families choose to go be active on that day. And, uh, and so, whereas Mother's Day is they like to gather in and, um, and, and have a, a meal after church, uh, Father's Day tends to be a little bit more, let's go somewhere and, and do something together. And so, we acknowledge that, that uh, this day is a unique day in the church. And so we say we are grateful for the fathers, for the example they've given. Um, often the fathers are the ones that have provided the canopy, the, the coverage for us to grow in our faith and to understand the Father God. And uh, so on this day, hope you have plans to do something uh, that is enjoyable as a family. Uh, having said that, if you are new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC. And we take time to go through scripture uh, sections of at a time. And we are in this book called the book of James that was written by the, the first leader of the church. Uh, yes, many people know Peter as being that person, but Peter was the first voice, the first uh, spokesman, if you will, of the, of the early church. But it was James that was the leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he wrote this book that is very blunt and straight to the point that is helping the early church make sure that it doesn't fall into bad behaviors or patterns. And so he addresses some things that are very relevant uh, that we deal with as a church and today will be no different. So I'm gonna ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter five. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. Uh, but we also utilize an app called the YouVersion uh, Bible app. And if you go into there, uh, you'll find our services in the events tab. And then if you tap on LEFC, you will find the scriptures we're using today. So today we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. And the context there is that he's just, we spent time looking at how wealth or money can end up causing our heart to be uh, distracted or, uh, or moved away from God. Money has a way of becoming our God. And so we looked at how uh, from James chapter 5 verses 1 to 6, how money uh, becomes sin in our hearts. And, uh, and so we, we did that last week. But the context of all that is how money can create, what should I say, very ugly and ungodly Christians. Uh, and, and so this is speaking to people within the church and how wealth has caused maybe a corruption or an, an improper spirit towards one another. And, uh, and, and it leads to, honestly, some within the church being uh, under hardship because of the oppression or the injustice of those that use their wealth in, in inappropriate forms. Today, what he's speaking to is that, so, it's a suffering church. It's a this church is going through a very difficult season. There is already people losing their lives because of being followers of Jesus. And so the church is suffering from sometimes oppression from within, from fellow believers, and sometimes from difficulties that are from without. And many of those things are not necessarily human-related. They're just life. Uh, they, we go through tragedies and, and difficult seasons of time. And it, and it can lead to, what should I say, a season of us wondering, is God even active? Is he even at the driver's seat of life anymore? Uh, or is he taking a blind eye to what's going on around me? Because it certainly seems like God is absent. 
I mean, many of us would say that we're discouraged or disappointed with some of the cultural shifts in our country or in our region. And, and we're like, God, why, why are you allowing this to happen? What are you doing? Those are fair questions. But sometimes, de- depending on the level of difficulty, it gets you to the place where you're like, I'm angry at God. I am actually rejecting God right now because I feel like he has not cared for me. Maybe it's tragedy or loss or some form of grieving or, or maybe it's just uh, some kind of physical issue that's come into play that is just, it's become a long journey. And you're wondering, like, I've been praying every day for God to remove this season from my life and it keeps happening. So how do you handle when you're in the midst of that, your own spirit. Because you have a church that everybody, at this point in time that James is writing to, everybody's going through a hard time. So how do they approach this difficult time as a church and not cause a culture of the church that is uh, unhealthy towards God, but rather is towards, towards him in faith? And so we can see these kind of challenges happen within organizations. And there's one real holy organization that went through such a a significant challenge in its history. And it's maybe coming out of it. In 2014, after a series of of business decisions that were being questioned by others, people began to wonder, what is going on? I mean, this is an organization we believe in. And, and so after several head-scratching decisions, a person who works for that organization was asked about what's going on. And that person said, and referring to their GM for the 76ers, you gotta trust the process. You gotta trust the process. This player was as frustrated as everybody else. It seems like any good player that came onto the team was traded away for more draft picks. And you're wondering, well, at what point do we start playing with the ones you draft? So over and over, decisions were being made that were were causing the fans to just get frustrated. And so at games, they started chanting when they would be down by 20 or so points, they would start chanting, trust the process, trust the process, as they were mocking what had been said by the organization. So what does the phrase actually mean? Well, in this case, it was sarcasm. It was, no, we don't trust you. This is taking way too long, and somebody else needs to be put in charge of the organization. Well, maybe things began to turn when they got finally the right player on their team that they could build around. Because in 2014, they drafted starting center from the University of Kansas, Joel Embiid. All good things come from Kansas. If you don't know anything, I'm from Kansas, so that's why I had to put this in there. But it's true. He was, he became the centerpiece for the change of the organization. But let's analyze the phrase for a moment. That player that was frustrated that actually answered the question with ESPN, you know, what do you think about what's going on with the team? Are you in support of it? And he said, you know, you just got to trust the process. What's really being said in that moment? Well, it's a phrase that says, it's time to be patient, even though things don't look so good right now. There is a plan that is there. And so you have to remind yourself, 
Trust the process because there is a plan. It doesn't feel like there's a plan. It doesn't feel like it's going well. In fact, it's going really poorly and it's been that way for a long time, but there is a plan. And it will take time for that plan to bear fruit. So you gotta just simply trust the process. But what was a struggle for the fans of Philadelphia 76ers was by trusting the process, you have to trust the one that's running the process. That's where I think it brings into the text we have today. I don't know what your lives bring to the table today. I don't know if your life, you would say you're in a good season, uh, a mediocre season, or perhaps a season that is extremely difficult and bleak. But if you're in that season where things are a challenge or maybe somebody near you, they're going through one of the most difficult challenges of their life. For them to be able to say, trusting the process of God may be an impossible statement because sometimes these seasons are so heavy and so long that it's hard to believe that there is a person in control of what's going on around us when it all seems to be in chaos. It's also hard to believe that there is, uh, that this person's very invested because it seems to be keep going longer and longer. And then it's even more difficult to then trust that that God that's supposedly controlling the process actually has a character that you can trust in. So as you look at what's going on in the world or look at what's going on around you, you may be struggling with trusting God. And what I think you're going to hear from James today is that when speaking to a church who as a collective whole were going through a very difficult season of time that was a long season of time and would go beyond the lifetime, quite frankly, of those receiving this letter, that to trust that God's in control when many of them were being put to death being stolen from, being beaten, having their children turned against them, to say there's a God that is a holy God that loves them and is in control of all things would have been a very difficult word to receive. And then on top of that, to say that his timing is good when each day that he waits to fulfill certain things or change the paradigm or the season of the story to say that his timing is good would have been very difficult for many of them to say. What about his timing? What is good about this timing that he continues to wait? And then to say he's good. He's good. Would also be very difficult. When you read about atheists, and they challenge the whole idea and the concept of God, they will say the greatest argument for their cause and their belief is that there is, to think that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God that is overseeing the earth when evil prevails and suffering prevails is saying it's irrational to believe there's such a God. You see, many atheists get there because they have gone through the fire 
And they could not get to a place of trusting that God is indeed in control and that God's timing is good and that his character is good. So James does not withhold from this difficult subject. And he goes in and he says in verse seven, he says, be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, We count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So verse seven again. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Therein is the difficulty, right? If you're in the midst of this oppressive, difficult season of life, or you're being overcome by as you look at what's going on in culture around you, it can be easy to to move from patience to something more like impatience or frustration. And what you will see here in the text is that frustration with injustice or oppression or advancement of immorality or difficulty must be met with patience. That's the charge that you get from James here. Be patient in the midst of this. Be patient, brothers and sisters. And then he draws from an analogy of the farmer. Now, for us, many of us here are not farmers, but we live among the farms. I mean, most of you drove by a farm to come here. And you can appreciate the one he says here, when he says, be patient, and then he says, consider the farmer. See how he waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, like them, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. So the appeal then is to the farmer. If you're struggling in the midst of this difficulty, being patient, like trying to be patient with when God's gonna flip the script or change the narrative, you have to take a long view kind of like the farmer. Now, if you can't relate to this, let me draw upon something that maybe will help you. Consider four weeks ago. Let's even go three weeks ago. When you drove to work, when you drove to the grocery store, when you drove from Ephrata to Lidditz or Lidditz to Mannheim or south to Mannheim Township, did you not get concerned as the corn and the beans started to come up and were shriveling? The dryness was significant. I know that I don't like my yard starting to turn brown. But my life does not depend on whether my yard is green or brown. And I couldn't help but think as I'm passing these farms, wondering if it was going, this crop is going to make it. And it matters. 
Because of what's going on in Europe, there is a grain shortage in the world. So it matters that rain comes to our crops, even if we're not a farmer. And I found myself praying like, Lord, how long is this going to be dry here? Would you not bring rain? And I could tell that some of the, the fields were not planted as early as they normally are. And farmers were wondering, do I put the seed into the ground only to watch it die? Or do I wait? And, and so being a farmer is a game of patience. And in the same way, when you talk about life, you're wondering, like, do I act? Do I move out? Do I do this, make this decision in light of these challenges going around? What am I to do? How should I respond? And if you're like going to the Lord about it at all, and you're just, you recognize that as you pray about it and so on, you, you're getting this direction that says, just be patient, I'm in control. I've got this. But meanwhile, it keeps going longer and longer and it keeps getting more and more difficult. The natural impulse is either to reject God and say it's taken too long or help God out. Now, what do I mean by that, helping God out? Consider Abraham's story. Abraham was told when he was living in what is now northern Iraq, go to what we now know as Israel. This is your land. I'm going to give it to you. He had never been there before, but it's going to be yours. And you're going to become a nation, right? You're going to become a great nation. He goes there. And now he has to be thinking while he's traveling there. He's like, now this is interesting because I don't have any children and I'm old. And so is my wife. So they show up. He's like, well, God's got this. They get there. They discover there are many great people groups there of which are pretty powerful people. Somehow, this is gonna become his land. But he's just got a small group of people. How is this gonna be his land when none of them are his offspring? Time goes on. He's living in a tent in that land that God says is going to be yours and you're gonna be the nation ruling over it. Time goes on. Abraham was already old. He's getting now older. Sarah went from being old to being really old. And, you, and you're, it's really interesting when you look at the language. Like Abraham talks about himself being old, but when he talks about his wife, he really talks about her getting really old. <laughs> Bad husband work there. Like learn from that. Doesn't go well. So what does Sarah do? She suggests something like, maybe we can help God out here. Why don't you take my maidservant and take her as your wife as well and then we can maybe create this nation God spoke of and we can do it through her. So Abraham helps God out. Didn't consult God on this, goes this route. Sure enough, she has a child. This child is Ishmael. Ishmael, which Abraham was initially very proud of, thinking this is good, goes before the Lord and the Lord says, this is not the one. This isn't how I said it was to go. And then Isaac comes along later. But here's the problem. Because Abraham decided to help God out, you and I still get to watch how that mistake bears fruit. Ishmael becomes the father of several nations that are now the, the most hated enemies of Israel. And they've been at war since that time. So Abraham trying to help God out, not being patient and not persevering, 
ends up creating the very enemies to the child that was going to be the child of the promise, Isaac. We get to see it lived out. So I wonder, and I'm curious about how many times you and I, when we're going through our, our most difficult times in life, and, and it's not going the way we want it, and, instead, and we get tired of going to God and praying about it, asking for his intervention, asking for him to lead it, and we get to that place where we're just like, you know what? I got some thoughts in my mind that if I go this way, that'll be better. Now, you're not thinking I'm helping God out, but you kind of quit consulting God, and so you choose your own path. Maybe I can make a better decision for it, only to discover with time that some of those decisions you made without consulting God to help God out ended up being devastating for you. How many decisions did we make when we were younger like some of us that have lived a few more years of life, and we look back to our teen years, our college years, or our young adult years, and we were living our lives thinking that we knew better than our parents, only to know that how stupid we were. And some of our decisions we still pay consequences to now. Fortunately for Abraham, he figured some things out, and he realized that before he died, that not trusting God all the way to the end was catastrophic. But he continued to live by faith at the end. And then we see what God ultimately did. But the story happened later. Abraham never got to see his family become a nation. He could only trust it from afar. God was in control. God had a plan. And God's character was good. But there was a point where Abraham questioned it all. Let's continue on. So James is confronting this. So be like the farmer, being patient, trusting that God's timing is good and that God does have a plan. Then verse nine, he says this, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, uh, against one another, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So some of us may not act. Again, processing the mind of James here. He's looking at a church that's going through a very difficult time. He acknowledges that some of them are becoming impatient. They're trying to act ahead of God's direction for their life. But he gets to this place where he's like, but another outcome of becoming impatient, another outcome of, of becoming uh, less perseverant is that they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. In fact, the term here in the Greek is saying a very overly harsh or critical spirit towards others. So as a result of becoming more and more impatient of the difficulty of life, you begin to complain about it. And you start complaining about it, grumbling about it, and then guess what? As you grumble, you start realizing, you know what? It's your fault. Or it's your fault. Or you're not helping me. And so then it becomes a grumbling and a complaining towards one another, and it starts harming you and your family and can potentially even harm the church. See, what happens when you embrace impatience is that it will lead to a grumbling spirit or a critical spirit that harms relationships. James points us out like, don't do this. Don't become that critical person. Don't become that harsh person that if things are getting difficult and it's going longer and longer and so it's more, more challenging to keep your spirit in the right place, don't become that complainer. Don't become that person that grumbles, that you become miserable 
And that anybody that hangs out with you for any length of time becomes miserable with you. You failed to trust what God is doing. And now you're becoming judge. You're judging those around you when he is the judge. It's real easy right now to blame what's going on in culture on politics. And that's where a lot of grumbling within the church happens as we look at the politicians and we complain against them. We grumble against them. We have a harsh spirit towards them. Or even local politicians or leaders. Or maybe even the church. As COVID and those and the times became longer, complaining and being harsh towards church leaders even began to happen as if they started it. It's interesting when things are difficult and it goes long, we look to blame because we need to fixate our anger and frustration because maybe we're not bold enough to give it towards God, but it's real easy pickings to point at each other. It's continuing on here. Verse 10, it says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, consider the prophets who spoke of the name of the Lord. Oh, Okay, so we're talking to a Jewish church here at this point in time. They're going through a difficult season. He's saying, look at the farmer. They're patient. They're perseverant. Don't be complaining and grumbling. And if you think you've got a hard let's, or difficult, let's look at the prophets. And you have a high view of the prophets. I mean, we, we now can read back and understand Elijah for Elijah, Elisha for Elisha, Hosea or Isaiah, we can see that what they said was true, but we fail to recognize how difficult it was to be Hosea, Isaiah, Elisha, or Jeremiah, or any of those prophets at that time. They were not accepted and celebrated by their peers and the ones they spoke to. But yet, those of us that look back and say, well, what they said was so right and was so true, and it came to fruition, and we could see that, yes, God had a plan, but guess what? None of those prophets got to see that plan fulfilled. It came later. So consider them. They endured. They persevered. They spoke. And they paid the price for it. And they did so being patient and perseverance. And never getting to actually see the fruit of their words. It came later. Jesus came later. We know there are over 400 messianic prophecies that those prophets spoke to his coming, but they never got to see Jesus face to face. This was something that was going to happen later. So they trusted that the process that God was doing through them and their part of it was worthy of their actions. So they patiently persevered, even though they themselves were not necessarily going to experience the beauty of those words. Consider Hebrews chapter 11. Just turn just a couple pages to the left. It's, this chapter is talking about, uh, you know, those who are of great faith of old from the Old Testament. But there's a, the writer of Hebrews writes about these prophets in a way that helps me appreciate what James is saying here. So in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32, it says, and what shall I say? Do I not have time to talk, tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets? 
And those prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others though, these prophets, who were tortured, refused to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some of them faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Want to be a prophet? Man, when you consider their stories, it's like they went through it. And they had to patiently persevere and wonder like, God, are you ever going to change the narrative? Is Israel gonna finally worship you and stay faithful to you? And yet they were being told by God and compelled by God, but go and speak this word of call to them to come back to me, pointing out their sin to draw back to me. Elijah, in his journey, had so much that he was forced to say. He's considered the greatest of the prophets. And yet he had some of the harshest messages from God to be able to share with the nation of Israel. And as a result, he was despised. He was fought against. In fact, the king of the northern kingdom even threatened his life multiple times. Elijah felt so isolated in his message that he said over and over that he thought he was the only prophet of the Lord left. That doesn't sound like a man that says, did you know, like, I'm like the greatest prophet of God. No, he probably felt like, am I the one most abandoned of the prophets? He became depressed to the point of being suicidal. And then when God said, all right, enough's enough, time to get back in the journey, forced him to go all the way back through Israel by the way he came, and then to anoint the one that was gonna bring judgment upon Israel, a king of the north. Elijah did not get an experience on this earth all that God was going to bring about. Elijah did not get to celebrate the fact that God had used him to be one of the greatest messengers in the history of Israel. Elijah went to heaven never seeing while on this earth the fulfillment of the things he was speaking to. He saw some amazing things, but he experienced some hardship. Daniel, the same thing. A man that, that God used as such a strong prophet. And we celebrate Daniel's life, but consider Daniel's life. He was a royal prince of Israel. When Israel was defeated by Babylon, he was made a eunuch. His manhood was taken from him. And so he's taken then to serve pagan kings in a foreign land. And three different kings he had to serve, each time having to earn their trust each time having threats to his life. He stayed faithful, but he himself 
didn't get to experience all that God was going to speak through him. His life was many times on the cusp of death. If you were to ask Daniel, do you see your life as being a celebrated life, a good life? And he would have probably said, it's been a difficult life. Do you think God is quick at his promises? He'd probably say, well, it's been a pretty long journey. Do you think there were moments where he wondered, is God going to save him and spare him? Yes. But because Daniel was perseverant and patient, even though those around him were not, Daniel didn't get to experience the blessings of God that were gonna come to Israel. They came after Daniel. Yet we celebrate Daniel now. These are things that are said by James to a church that is suffering, thinking that, they, that things are becoming despairing. How can we personally trust in God? How can we be patient with God? How can we know his plan is gonna come to fruition? How can we know that his timing is good? And how can we really see that his character is worthy of our trust when right now all we feel is the suffering? Look at verse 11. Not only does he speak and appeal to the prophets, but now he appeals to another one. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered, these prophets, these leaders of old. But then he brings probably the story that is the most profound story of the Old Testament when it comes to perseverance. You have heard of Job's perseverance. Have you seen what the Lord finally brought about in his life when the Lord is full of compassion and mercy? Job, we look back on Job and we say, that gives us hope that when things get really, really bad, that God's doing something, we just can't see it. But does anybody in this room ever aspire to be Job? No, and I wouldn't want to. That's why James even bringing this up was like almost going into a hollow territory to even bring this name up that you're saying we should be like Job as a church where we persevere in spite of how awful things get. Job lost his entire family. Job lost all his means of making wealth. All of this happened in a day. It was the most horrific of days. And then Job went on a journey trying to figure out what did I do to anger God? He had friends that came to console him and encourage him. And at first they were encouraging and consoling. But as time went on and it seemed that things went from worse to worse, they began to grumble. They began to complain. They began to be harsh. And then they're like, you know what, Joe? Maybe you have been wrong towards God. You see, you gotta start blaming when it goes long. Surely the plans of God wouldn't take this long unless there's something wrong with you, Job. But we know the story. It's written and the church of, if, that James is writing to knows the story and they say, consider Job's perseverance in spite of how difficult it was and then seeing how the Lord, and this key word, how the Lord finally brought about his plan and it became evident. And for Job, he did get to see it bring about, brought about to fruition. And there was blessing that returned to his household. And even Job could say, 
in spite of all the loss he had experienced, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Sometimes when we're in the most difficult of seasons of our life, to be able to declare with our mouths that God is full of compassion and mercy may be the most difficult thing to say. But Job was able to get there in spite of everything. So what do we learn in this text? Well, I believe at the crux of all of this is trust. Patience and perseverance are all about trust. And it begins with trusting in the sovereignty of God. Believing that yes, there is a God and he is one God and he is in control and he is in control of all things and that there is a plan that will prevail and he is orchestrating his plan. He is, in, he is worthy of trusting the process he has established Number two, not only is it trusting in his, that he is in control and, and is sovereign, but trusting that his timing is good. Trusting in his timing. Because man, that can be difficult when the timing goes long. I mean, that's why James says here, when you consider how long Job toiled over what was going on in his life, that's why you can say, when God started doing the work that they could evidently see, it was to use the word finally brought about. And for the heavens, I mean, think about this. The angels are watching prophet after prophet go to Israel and there would be a short-term repentance, a short-term confession, and then they would kill the prophet over and over, prophets were killed, short-term gains, but long-term failures. Even they had to wonder, God, how long are you going to wait to bring Jesus? How long are you going to wait? And then on the night when Jesus was born, and you said, glory to God in the highest, the angels are probably going, finally? I mean, Finally. God is sovereign. He is in control. God has a plan, and there is a timing to that plan. But there's a third thing that we have to learn to trust in, and that is his character. Trusting in the character of God who is orchestrating that plan. There are people on this earth that say, trust me, I got this. And you may be like, all right, but you got one eye, like really raised, and you're waiting to see if, it's, if they're worthy of that and if their character is gonna sustain through it. With God, he has proven over and over and over again. He is in control. His timing is always good and his character is always intact. He is always compassionate and merciful. I mean, think of the story of Job himself or Elijah or Abraham, they all failed at different points. But God still used them. So what's going on there that he still used them? It's because he's merciful. In his mercy, he continues to help them. And because of his mercy, he, is brought, he brings about this compassion that he works in us in spite of us. Because he's ultimately bringing about something in your life. And as he brings about something in your life, he's bringing something out in the lives of those around you. Because there is a plan that he is bringing to fruition.
I would like to ask you to take a moment to just have our time between you and the Lord. If you could just bow your heads. If you want to close your eyes, that's fine. But just kind of lower your eyes uh, down or close them. And just ask yourself, do you truly trust in the Lord? Do you truly trust in his sovereignty and his plan? Or do you spend most of your life according to your own control and your own plans? Can you say with sincerity of heart that you believe that God is good and that his compassion and his mercy are unfailing? These things might be difficult if you're in the most difficult season of your life for whatever the causes might be to be able to say, I trust that God's in control. I trust in his timing and I trust that he is good. I, that may be really, really difficult for you to say right now. But hear what Job said after he realized, and again, keeping that reflection, self-reflection spirit. Hear what Job said when he finally got to that place where he could reflect and really come to that place, I trust God in spite of it all. This is what Job said to the Lord. In Job 42, I know, Lord, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to to know. You said, Lord, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. But my ears had heard of you before, and now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job had this encounter after reflecting and and praying and just wondering why all these things may have happened. He finally was able to come to that place. I trust God. He has a plan. He has his timings and I could see him for his good character. Can you come to that same place that Job had? Where you can trust God even if you don't understand. Solomon said this and we'll be preaching to this later in the summer. He's like, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Understanding may not be here yet, but can you trust God? So Jesus, I just ask that you would work in our hearts and if there is a place of mistrust or if there's a place where there's a lack of faith, maybe they're in the midst of the most difficult season of their life. Can you reveal yourself to them that your character of compassion and mercy is ever so present? to give them strength where they can declare you as God and in control and that your timing is good. So work in our hearts now as we consider these things and even pray a song to you in this moment. So be glorified in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Would you stand please? 
We're about to sing a song that we've done at this church many times before. It was a song written in the midst of an incredible series of turmoil and difficulty. The person who wrote it was stating this, that it's like, I don't see right now what God is doing, but I know what he's done in the past. And I know what he can do in the future and that there is some kind of future. So he penned this song and this is what he says. He says, waiting for the season or change to come, knowing the battles won, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You have never failed me yet. I know the night won't last. Your word will come to pass. My heart will sing your praise again. May this prayer be sung with sincerity from our hearts. Let's sing this song.
promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed. Your promise still stands. Psalm 77, David was going through the hardest time of his life, in this case, because of his own failures. And he was wondering, you know, is there ever going to be a time that God will bless my life again? Will I ever see there being a fruit or a narrative that is more positive? And what you see in Psalm 77 is that David begins to recall of things of the past and declares that, you know, those are the things that will give me encouragement now. And we just sung that, is that we know enough about what God's done in the past that while we're in the midst of the storm now, we can draw upon the past to know that God is in control, that his timing is good, and that his compassion and his mercies are never going to fail you. We can learn that by looking back while we're in the midst of something very difficult now. And so with that being said, my encouragement to you is if you do not have a relationship with Jesus and you're going through a hard time and a difficult time, let me tell you, there is no better place than to give your life. Jesus came to reconcile those who are lost and separated from God back to himself. Give yourself over to him. Let him change you. Let him give you a purpose and a plan and you can discover how, <laughs> how he can change the narrative of your life. For those of us that have been believers for a while, I take a charge from Paul when going through the midst of something difficult and we're struggling to trust God. Listen to what it says here in Romans chapter 15 when it says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is what we long for. We put our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then as a result, we can experience then the beauty of what he brings about. And we're not hopeless then because we know he's in charge and he has a plan and his character is always good. 
If you would like to talk to someone today, we'll have people in the, in the encounter room that'd be glad to pray with you, encourage you, and to hear from your heart. I'll be also, also be up front. Uh, be glad to sit and talk with you or t- stand and talk with you. We wanna make sure that you leave here today, if you're in the midst of the storm, encouraged and given strength because our God will walk with you. Having said that, go in the hope that is found in Christ alone. Amen. You're dismissed.